1: Hey, this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline, and this is Doc Talk. My partner John Ridley is on assignment this week. Very busy guy. He's got his upcoming film about Shirley Chisholm. So he's busy with that right now. But in this episode of Doc Talk, we wanted to go in depth with some of the Oscar-nominated filmmakers in the best documentary feature category. We're talking with Nisha Pahuja, the director of To Kill a Tiger. Her film is about this courageous couple in a small, very small village in India who fought for justice after their daughter was the victim of a really shocking crime that earned Nisha her first Oscar nomination. And we're also going to be speaking with Mstislav Chernov. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his work documenting Ukraine. His film is 20 Days in Mariupol, which is about the siege of that port city in Ukraine. In the early days of Russia's invasion of its neighbor, it's hard to believe, but we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of Russia's horrible, unprovoked attack on Ukraine. Here now is my conversation with the directors of To Kill a Tiger and 20 Days in Mariupol. One of the five films to earn Oscar nominations in the documentary feature category is 20 Days in Mariupol, which premiered almost exactly a year ago, just a little bit over a year ago at the Sundance Film Festival.
2: Russians have entered the city. The war has begun and we have to tell its story.
1: We are joined by director Mstislav chernov uh, I remember speaking with you at uh, Sundance last year and seeing you at the award ceremony. What has this nomination meant to you? I know that any, any talk of a celebration is, is inappropriate because of the nature of the film, of documenting this horrible siege of Mariupol that be- began at the when Russia engaged in its full-scale invasion of Ukraine and left tens of thousands of civilians dead. But what was your, your reaction when you heard the news that you were Oscar-nominated? It is a bitter and uh,
2: sweet moment at the same time because this film wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this horrible tragedy that we've recorded. And I honestly wish that this film wouldn't exist. But things have happened, and uh, we were able to record at least some of them, and I felt like it's my duty to to keep telling that story. This is painful to watch. But it must be painful to watch.
1: (laughs)
0: And...
2: Almost a year ago, when the film premiered at Sundance, it felt like a miracle that we went that far, that we were actually able to tell that many people and they didn't walk away from the cinema. They didn't, you know, try to escape from sometimes difficult shots and and they understood it. And and then we got the audience awards. So it really was really like a proof that we are on the right track and the people feel that this story is important. And as time has passed, more and more meanings were added to, to the film. Mariupol got to symbolize all other Ukrainian cities that got destroyed in these two years. Bakhmut, Mariinka, Bogledar, Solidar, now Avdiyevka, and so it stands as a symbol now, not only a representation of the story. And the opportunity and the honor of, of nomination uh, for Oscars and other recognition that we got, it is an opportunity to make sure that this story is not forgotten, that this symbol is, it remains in, in people's mind, that Mariupol isn't just a, a word which can be forgotten. So yeah, for that, I am happy. For I'm happy to that, to know that this will stay in people's memory.
1: Towards the beginning of the film, you you say that uh, within about a week of the invasion of, of the country and of the siege of Mariupol beginning, all the international journalists had left. You and your your small team stayed. Have you ever thought about what would have happened if you hadn't been there to document it? Because images and footage bring home the reality in a way that, that words really can't. This is an excellent question because...
2: I was thinking about this a lot in this year. It was It's very hard to get any information, any real information on what is happening in Mariupol and what was happening in Mariupol after we left. It was basically a black hole. Uh, and uh, so many other tragedies happened after we left. And we were able to get only bits and pieces of, of that. And the worst thing is that when you don't have a record of anything, uh, this empty space is filled by, by false narratives. And we can actually see what is happening uh, right now. Uh, so Russia will premiere um, a scripted miniseries about Mariupol in February, which they're called 2022, and they're about Mariupol. And that what actually scares me. The fact that if we, we were not there to, to record at least something, and we recorded so little comparing to the scale of tragedies that happened there, if we were not there, then the only thing that would exist uh, uh, about Mariupol is people's memories that they have and false narratives. And on the long run, false narratives, you know, they're stronger than people's memories, because people want to forget tragic events of their, of their lives. Uh, but now I see when I meet people from Mariupol, when I go and see the film, and that what happened in the recent, in recent year as well, after it was premiered. Mariupol residents went to cinemas and online to see the film. And I saw how that gave them an instrument to talk about their life and what they lived through it is very hard for them to express the reality of what they've experienced, but now they have a tool, they have an instrument to to do that. So I, I'm happy to give them this this instrument uh, to be able to express themselves. But yeah, uh, y- yeah um, I think it is uh, incredibly important to make sure that every shot, every minute that was recorded in, in Mariupol, but also in other places in Ukraine now, uh, that we don't necessarily see in the news, is recorded and preserved because the time will come when everything will be questioned, everything will be denied. And in that moment, having
1: these records is, is crucial for Ukraine's history and for the world's history. And we see in the film, for instance, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov uh, a news clip of him claiming, "Oh, all oh, this is fake. This has been staged, and it's not just him, but other Russian officials." So they're busy trying to sow a, a false narrative and convince their their people that news footage isn't the truth, which is enormously frustrating uh, on on so many levels. And certainly, as a journalist, as somebody who's dedicated to telling the truth, it's it's just it's one of the one of the great outrages of of this conflict. Uh, and we see that tool being used in just about every conflict, of course. I can see how information in recent years, I've been conflict
2: correspondent for almost a decade, and I've seen how how countries uh, weaponized information. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <It's your laughs> My daughter is daughters <laughs> here. Yeah. I have so, much, so very little time to, sp- to mm-hmm. spend with them, only a couple of days before I have to yeah. No. And this is your youngest daughter. That's my youngest daughter. She was six months six months old when, when Mario Ball was happening. Okay, thank you. Of course. <laughs> I would say that uh, in the in recent years, uh, I've been a war correspondent for almost a decade. I've seen how countries, even Not only totalitarian, authoritarian countries, but also democratic countries started seeing information as a weapon and a warfare. And that's exactly what we also hear from uh, uh, Russia's UN envoy in a film. He says that, you know, it's information war. So for these countries, information is a weapon and by extension, journalists are soldiers, which is a very disturbing thing because that makes us a target that makes documentary filmmakers and journalists, every every person with a camera a target. And this should not happen. But it also it's also important to acknowledge that this this idea that it has that is in the air right now signifies that our modern history, when, when someone will look at, at our generation, at what was happening right now, uh, from from the future, they will look at us and our Time will be defined by this false narrative, by, by abundance of fake news, of misinformation and misinterpretation. And I think, historically speaking, it is important to preserve this uh, as part of the history. Fake news are also part of our history. You see what I mean? So to preserve the examples of fake news... As, as much important as preserving a uh, reality. And that's what has been one of the themes of the 20 days in Mariupol. That's why, that's what we were trying to capture. That's what I was trying to do in, in the editing room to explore this theme of, of, of journalism and, and false narratives and misinformation and to, to find an artistic tool to, to be able to express that, to, to show the transformation of their reality into this, um, something very different.
1: You know, we see in the film so many innocent civilians killed, of Evangelina, four years old, of Ilia, 16 years old, 18 month old, Kirill. It, it's so devastating. I, I think it would break the heart of anyone who sees it. I. As more time goes by, we see the American public seemingly turning its attention away. And we're told in in media reports that there's a lessening of, of support for the Ukrainian people. It's become a big political issue domestically in the United States and tied up for various reasons with the immigration debate. It must be, I would think, very frustrating for you as a Ukrainian and as a filmmaker to see that, to see the initial outrage followed by maybe turning away of the attention and finally a, a certain degree of almost apathy.
2: I would say that as a filmmaker and as an international journalist, again, who worked in six other wars, I would say I understand what is happening. I remember 2015 and 16 when the world moved on from Ukraine to Syria. Equally important and devastating story. Aleppo was was besieged and destroyed by Russian bombs and that required immediate attention and people have a limited capacity for attention and for tragedy. This is all understandable. And also, we as journalists have limited capacity, like limited resources. We cannot be in two places at the same time. But I think partially that was that was a mistake the mistake that we all moved on uh, well Ukrainians didn't of course but most of the international society moved on and have you know, made a choice to forget that russian invasion started in 2014 and switched to another switched their focus to another events and uh, that resulted in everyone not being prepared for russian uh, for for escalation for the full scale invasion that happened in 2022 because we didn't talk enough about it, because we didn't alarm the international uh, society e- enough, we were not prepared and the world was not prepared and everybody was taken by surprise. How did, you know, what, why? But for Ukrainians, the reality is that for Ukrainians, this war uh, it was part of their life already and the escalation was inevitable. And I, I wouldn't say... Again, as a, as a journalist, I understand what is happening and I have my feelings about it, but I'm not going to express them mm. because it's unprofessional. However, I can tell what the Ukrainians feel that I'm, I keep talking uh, to all the time because I am in Ukraine all the time when I'm not presenting the film. And the most painful part, probably the, the part that makes them feel frustrated is not that the international support is... Uh, falling, or you know, it's or it's not enough. Ukrainians understand that other countries have to take care of themselves and their the other problems. I think what frustrates Ukrainian more is the fact that the world doesn't really, majority of people does not really recognize that the Ukrainians are not only fighting for their own survival, but they are fighting for uh, at least for the rest of the Europe. If you listen, the Russian narratives, they are at war with Europe, they are with war at war with U.S. That's what they keep saying to their public. That's what they are pushing. And the world doesn't seem to recognize that, that they are at war and not only with Ukraine. So it is, it is quite scary and it's quite frustrating when your neighbor uh, has nuclear weapons and he, your neighbor is at war with you and you, you don't even... Know about it, and when you know about it, it's too late. It's kind of a upsetting to Ukrainian just to to become that the bombing of the cities uh, and the human loss becomes normality. That's that's another frustrating thing. Could you imagine if any of the Euro, uh, any of the European or U.S. cities was was bombed daily? Let's say Russia would. Destroy LA uh, and occupy LA, and keep bombing New York every day, and the world would be just saying, "We're so tired of this news. This is this is not news anymore." That's that would sound absolutely absurd to uh, any American, and uh, that sounds absurd to uh, to Ukrainians too. So, just the the fact that the world thinks it's it's nothing special anymore about it, and uh, it doesn't deserve attention. that would that's what the hardest uh, hitting uh, fact here. And that's why I feel that bringing 20 days to the bigger audience helps that, helps to to serve as a reminder that this story is not over and this is not a trivial story. and what you see in the news is not everything that is happening and it's much more tragic and much more. As much deeper than than you would think.
1: The Biden administration, of course, national security apparatus is constantly doing assessments of the situation in Russia and and Putin and that sort of thing. And there was an assessment by the CIA director saying that the war in Ukraine has has weakened Putin. Uh, I'm just curious if. If you feel that's true, it's an excellent question because you need to you
2: need to constantly monitor what is happening in Russia to understand what will happen on the longer run. And we need that analysis. Unfortunately, I am not in Russia and I have a limited capacity to to analyze what's happening there. So just like watching news and speaking to some people, but That's pretty much it. But I have a very different feeling about what is happening in Russia now. It didn't seem that this, at least for those people who supported the war, and there are a lot of them, a majority right now of Russians supported the war. Again, I might be mistaken, but that seems to be the case. It only brought um, uh, good good things for them. Uh, that's maybe will sound bad, but and quite pessimistic. But they have benefited from war. They have occupied territories. They've uh, you know, eliminated a lot of the international media working uh, and a lot of independent media that were working in Russia. They've eliminated all the political opponents. Uh, they have built a better relationship with uh, China and India than they had before. They are producing more weapons than ever. The level of poverty is down. They have they got rid of thousands of convicts uh, that were serving uh, in their uh, jails and they don't care about loss of people. So it does feel quite depressing to think about it, how much they benefited from war. Look, even in Mariupol, the Russian companies are getting really good contracts for reconstruction. So they're actually making money on the city that they just destroyed with their bombs. Same thing happened in Aleppo. So it's a big business and uh, a lot of people benefit from it. And that is why uh, hopes that it's going to stop by itself are so
1: Naive at best. This is Love Chernov. It's um, wonderful to speak with you. I know you are going back to Ukraine while you're there now. Well, actually, where are you now? (laughs) No, I am currently, I'm
2: currently in Europe. This is part, I am in the middle of between two uh, screenings of our film. And this is all we right now do is make sure that more people will see the film. And I would rather be in Ukraine right now because I have another film that I'm working on and I would like to keep shooting it but right now the most important thing is to just to present uh, 20 days in Mariupol to the audiences because you know it feels like in this moment uh, in in uh, all the political environment that we have now right now in the world this would be the best thing I could do as a journalist and also as a Ukrainian.
1: Well, it's an extraordinary film and one that uh, is always going to be with us to show us the tragedy, the horrible crime against humanity that was committed in, in Mariupol. <clears throat> and we will see you in, in Los Angeles, yeah. I hope, sometime soon. We, we wish you and your, your family continued health and safety in the meantime.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for your time. Stay
1: safe. Thank you again to Slav Chernov for talking with us about 20 Days in Mariupol. We're going to turn our attention now to To Kill a Tiger, the documentary from Nisha Pahuja, which earned her the first Oscar nomination of her career. Please note, the following conversation references depictions of sexual violence involving a child. Like many documentaries, uh, it's been a long journey to the Academy Awards. Of course, most documentaries never make it that far. But for To Kill a Tiger, it's years in the making. We want to congratulate director Nisha Pahuja, who joins us. I know you spent many years working on this film. It must have been very far from your mind, I would imagine, that one day you would be an Oscar-nominated filmmaker for this.
0: Yep. Still really <laughs> far from my mind, Matt. Still can't quite believe it. It's, it's, it's incredible. Completely not... It was not at all part of the kind of original path or intention. So to be here is really special. Yeah, and unexpected.
1: The story of this film, and uh, it, it's a family in the state of Jharkhand uh, in India. This is a, a poor family, Ranjit, his wife Jiganti, and they have several kids. But it's really about what happened to Kiran, their oldest daughter, who was the victim of a, a horrible sexual assault. Instead of caving into the pressure of, of the community, they decided to fight for justice, which was a long process and really with very few odds of it of it working out. So this story you spent uh, remind us how many years working on it.
0: Yeah, I mean it's yes, it's as you say. You know, it was eight years and long years, arduous years, but you know, really. Committed team of people, amazing editor Mike and and uh, and Dave and you know Bernal, my my husband, cinematographer and Anita, like the Samir crew. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of I would say you know commitment on the part of the team, and I think just uh, I I I wish I could sort of you know read you part of like when we asked Ranjit like what it felt for him to be nominated and for her right like when 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 they found out that we have somebody on on uh, somebody from our team on the ground in 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 India who's sort of communicating with the family and apparently you know Kiran just kind of like yelped like she was just she was just so excited and Ranjit said you know he basically said well I know that the the Oscars are really important I don't quite know what they are but I've heard they're really important and all I can say is you know it is it's just extraordinary to be here because it means that the world is recognizing our struggle for truth and justice. And then he went on to kind of thank, you know, thank his daughter, right? Like, thank his, the, it's, it was really about, really about her. So, and I really, you know, obviously, like, we're going we're gonna to try to, to bring them, you know, to bring them to the U.S., to bring them for the ceremony if we can get their visas. And I think it, it's just such a an incredible it's really a testament. I mean, I really feel this, right? It's just sort of a testament to their their courage and, and their strength. That's why, that's why we're here, right? We're here because this man decided that he was going to try and do the right thing. So,
1: And the backdrop of the film, of course, is that the vast majority of sexual assaults in India are, are never reported to police. And we, we get a sense of why that may be, certainly in rural traditional communities. The situation might be perhaps a bit different in in urban settings, but the reality is that whether it's urban or rural, very few of these assaults are reported. To what degree do you think that your film and its continued success and now with the nomination can impact Indian society? Of course, it's the world's most populous country, so the idea of, of one film... Changing a society is is a tall order, and yet um, one hopes that it can have an impact.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was, you know, for, for me, Matt, that was the you know that was really the the reason, right, for us for us to do this and for us to co- continue to kind of keep getting it out into the world. So, I just want to say one you know one thing for us, we obviously want to have an impact on India and and encourage survivors to come forward. And also, you know, to to sort of encourage other men to stand by by their daughters the way the way Ranjit did, because it is so exceptional and it is so rare. It is so so rare. But we're finding that it's actually this isn't an exception. You know, I mean, the the story might be specific to India and geographically situated in this tiny village, but the reality is is that this is the this is actually what this is. You know, what the film is is a reflection of the reality for survivors around the world, you know? And if you look at stats in the United States or the UK or Europe, you know, stats of in terms of uh, survivors coming forward or, uh, you know, cases being persecuted and then actual, you know, punishment being meted out, it's actually less, you know, it's actually less than in India in, in certain cases. So for me, the idea is is not that it, it has an impact on India exclusively, but it actually has an impact around sexual violence around the world, you know, and, and how we talk about it and the systems that survivors face to to achieve justice and the fact that we need men to become part of the conversation.
1: Yes, and the origins of the film, as you and know, I have talked about before, was really examining toxic max- masculinity, in this case, in a context of India, but that applies around the world and certainly in in patriarchal culture where there's a constant threat of violence be it sexual physical against women so it is part of a a much larger context that up- applies in everywhere around the globe unfortunately
0: yeah exactly you know so as you said right it started off being it was really sort of an examination of that and and for me that's never uh, you know, the, the film became something completely different, but I think at its core, that idea of men and masculinity and the need to look at that and the need to actually talk about that is so important. I'll just tell you one thing. I had this incredible conversation with a young female lawyer in Berlin at a screening. She was so fascinating. And, and what she said was so true. She said, we're living in a time when, when we are telling men and boys what not to be but we aren't giving them options of what they should be we're not telling them what they should be and and so i think we're making we're making men and we're making boys feel guilty about this idea of of being male and yet we're not having these conversations you know uh with empathy and we're we're not talking about them in sort of broader like in a broader sense right which is about power and which is uh, also about the fact that this construct of patriarchy is oppressive, you know, for for men and women. We reduced it to these kinds of binaries, right? Like bad and good. And I think it's much more, it's much deeper, it's much more nuanced, it's much more sophisticated. And, and that thing that she said, the idea that we aren't telling them what to be, that we're not giving them options, I felt was... So it was such a revelation, you know, and it shouldn't be, but it was for me. It was just, she's absolutely right. And that's, for me, that's also where I feel Ranjith is so extraordinary. And I know that he offers that in a way, right? He really is sort of an antidote to that kind of toxic, that toxic masculinity.
1: Yeah, so one feels so much for him, for the whole family, of course. And you see the pain in, in his eyes of his feeling that he he did not protect his daughter that he had, he talks about every night of of you know telling her to to be careful to be safe to kind of monitoring in this one night where the attack took place he he didn't have that opportunity to and it it's just anguishing for him and again because of uh, the caste system other elements of of indian society he's really powerless or next to powerless, and yet somehow, through his persistence and, and courage, is, is able to, to move the, the legal and justice system to, to bring justice uh, for his daughter. And so the three young men who, who allegedly committed the act, they are, they are still in prison, which again is remarkable in and of itself. In most cases, they would never face any prosecution.
0: It is incredible, isn't it? You know? And and I mean, there's so much, obviously, you know, that that's going on there, like in just even in terms of the film and, and the and the crew and our role in the story and and you know the impact that we had. Uh but what was what was so clear to, to me and and you know, continues to be because he adores his daughter, is that she was the driving force in so many ways, right? Over the course of filming, you know, that that strength that she had, that tenacity that she had—it never, ever. She never changed. She never vacillated. He did. His wife did. You know, they—they they definitely were conscious of and afraid. But she was. It's not that she wasn't afraid, but she just demanded that. Demanded that everyone did did right by her, including her country. You know, including including that justice system. It's it's remarkable. Like I, I find her. I mean obviously the film is centers primarily on him but she really is as Dev put it it's so beautiful you know
1: This is Dev Patel you know, the executive producer
0: Yeah like he just you know he, he he said he calls her kind of the film's north star right she's the she's kind of the guiding the sort of the moral guide right and it's it's true you know and he was really just committed to doing the right thing in the end uh because of because of her and this this love and her resolve, her courage, right? He says he says that in the film at one moment, you know, if she can be this brave at thirteen, if she can be that courageous, then we have to keep fighting.
1: We see in the film that you and, and other members of your your crew, as well as the family, really were at great peril because the the village sort of rose up and was angry at the family for seeking justice. They wanted to marry off Kiran to one of her attackers. There was a lot of pressure from, from people in the village, as well as officials, for the family to do that, to just, like, dismiss it. And, you know, their, their daughter, from their point of view, ah, oh, she's been shamed and better to marry her off. Things really reached a boiling point where they were going, you know, villagers were threatening to attack the home with you and your crew in it. I'm just wondering what what the scariest moments were for you in, in making the film.
0: Well, without a doubt, you know, that scene where uh, where we're asked to stop, what well, we're not asked, where, where we're sort of, you know, where people are demanding that we stop filming and that we leave. Uh, that was, without a doubt, that was the most tense and the most um, terrifying. But, you know, it's, I think that was that was the scene that was the hardest, and not just not just because of a fear of not just the threat, right? Not just the the fear of of what could happen, um, but also I think for me, just my, just the knowledge that somehow I was part of a certain kind of dissolution of a social fabric that had been built over centuries, and and you know, which at its root has this idea of community. Right, and I think my awareness that somehow I was causing, I wasn't causing, I didn't cause it, uh, but I was exacerbating a kind of friction and dissolution that was a fraying, right? That was that was happening in terms of the bonds of the village. I was part of that. Um, I didn't create it, but I was, you know, I was a part of it. And I think I was very conscious of that. And and that moment in the film, you know, where the villagers come in. I think more than the fear was the sense of I'm part of something. I'm part of a certain kind of destruction. Maybe unnecessary destruction, you know, but a destruction nonetheless, which doesn't feel good, right?
1: So you were born in India but raised in Canada. But I wonder about the reaction to the film in, in India.
0: Yeah. My my film is actually exclusively Canadian um math. There's no Indian funding or is no, you know, Indian producers. I mean there's obviously Indian crew. Um, but you know, this it's it's a curious thing, right? Because I'm not considered I I'm not considered an Indian filmmaker, you know. I'm I'm considered a Western filmmaker, a, a Canadian filmmaker. Very
1: interesting. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And you know, I, I had this I, I had this conversation with someone um the other day about this idea of, you know, what does it mean to be a Canadian filmmaker and you know, like and I kind of thought to myself, I honestly don't even think about these things. I really don't think about these things. I think about being a filmmaker, and I think about what it means to tell stories and what it means to be a documentary filmmaker specifically, right? These ideas you know these sorts of identities and 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 nations and where you belong and who you belong to and who gets to claim you, those are all outside of you, right? What I feel internally is something. It is something very specific, and that is just kind of a, a a real pride for everyone that's been part of the film, and a tremendous um, just love and affection for the family. and and really, you know, just what Rajit said, which is essentially, this is a recognition of what we have achieved. And it, he's so it's so true. It's without that courage, without that commitment, None of us would be here. You and I wouldn't be having this conversation. So you know, to me, it's, it's, that's the most important thing. And I don't think India necessarily should be celebrating me. I think India should be celebrating this family because they're exceptional.
1: They are, and I, I certainly hope that um, they are able to attend the, the Oscars. I know that, as you mentioned, those working out visas can be very complicated yeah. and, and uncertain
0: We're going to get there, Matt. We're going to get there.
1: If if you can pull off a film like this, you know, I have full confidence that that you'll be able to do that. And uh, we certainly congratulate you, Nisha Pahuja, the director of To Kill a Tiger, Oscar nominated in the category of Best Documentary Feature. Thank you for being with us.
0: Thank you so much, Matt.
1: Thank you again to Nisha Pahuja, director of To Kill a Tiger, and Mistislav Chernov, director of 20 Days in Mariupol, for joining us on this edition of Doc Talk. Next week, we're going to continue our conversations with Oscar nominated filmmakers. My partner, John Ridley, will be back with us. We'll be talking with Maite Alberti, the director of Oscar nominated The Eternal Memory. And Kautar Banhanya, the director of Four Daughters. She earned her both both of them earned the second Oscar nominations of their career. That's coming up on the next edition of Doc Talk, hosted by John Ridley and myself, Matt Carey, documentary editor deadline. We hope you'll join us. <laughs>